0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look this morning at verses 13 to 28. All right, this is Matthew 16, 13 to 28. This is God's word for us, his people this morning. Listen to this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word for us this morning. Uh, Would you pray with me? Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We pray this morning that you would send us your spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our ears. Father, show us our sin, and show us our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a lot going on in this passage. And to try to get at some of what is going on here, I want to focus on three vivid verses that we see in these Uh, verses here this this passage the first one is Peter's confession we're going to look at that in verse 16 Peter says you are the Christ the son of the living God the second thing we're going to look at is Christ's response to Peter when Peter takes it upon himself to rebuke Jesus which is get behind me Satan we'll talk about that and the third one is verse 24 where Jesus said if anyone would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me We're going to look at those three verses in turn. So starting out with Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see the context there in verses 13 to 15, the disciples and Jesus have come into Caesarea Philippi and Jesus begins asking his disciples questions. This is how Jesus teaches his disciples and how Jesus teaches us. He asks us questions. And he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give some answers. Some of the people around us have thought that you are John the Baptist back from the dead. Some think you are the prophet Elijah, sort of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Others think that you are Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, or just maybe another kind of prophet. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? And Peter responds. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter makes the good confession here. Peter acknowledges and recognizes and proclaims who Jesus is. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the one God is sending into the world to fix the world. And Jesus says, Peter, you're right. And he actually says three things to Peter that's helpful in verse 17. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. The source of Peter's confession is not Peter's insight. Peter is not just more insightful than the other disciples. He doesn't just get this right because he's been paying attention the best. Jesus says, the source of your confession is God." himself. One commentator puts it this way. He says it's not Peter's character, his religious sensitivity, his sincerity, his openness, or anything in Peter that enables him to believe who Jesus is and to make the good confession. It is and always is the Father who gives saving faith. Jesus here reminds us that the faith we have itself is not something we have mustered up. It is always God who gives faith. Even our faith is not grounds for boasting. God is the one who gives faith. God is the one who revealed to Peter the truth about Christ. And Jesus continues in verse 18 and he says, You are Peter, which means rock, And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. That's the second response that Jesus makes to Peter's confession, which is helpful to realize what Jesus is saying there is not that he is building his church upon Peter, but actually that he is building his church upon Peter's confession. And the important thing for us to realize here is that Jesus is the one who builds his church. Jesus is the one who builds the church. I stand before you as a pastor, and all I have to offer you is Jesus. Jesus is the one who builds his church. It's not our planning. It's not our vision. It's not how compellingly I can stand up here and talk. Jesus is the one who builds his church. And Jesus even continues there and he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, Now it's interesting, you've got uh, footnotes in your Bible uh, and the ESV gives you a footnote there and it says, Greek, the gates of Hades. So there's a lot of debate in the Christian tradition about what it means to say that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Some people say that means that uh, the church itself will be on the offensive Uh, That the church will uh, be able to sort of even storm hell uh, and the kingdom will go forward. And that's certainly a possible meaning. Or maybe it means that uh, the gates of hell represent a fortress of the demonic powers and that those gates won't release anything that could overcome the church, which is also a possible meaning here. But there's another meaning that I think might even be most helpful. In the ancient world, there was this idea that to, to die, was to pass through the gates of Hades. Uh, Hades would be the Greek translation of the Hebrew idea of Sheol, which is not uh, hell, how we usually think of it, as this place of torment for uh, Satan and the forces of darkness. Hades is this sense of the grave, of, of death, of where people are after they have passed. And there was this idea that to pass through the gates of Hades was a one-way trip. There was no coming back through. I think what Jesus is actually saying here when he says the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church is that death does not defeat the church. Death does not defeat the Christian. What that means is Hades cannot hold God's people, Jesus is reminding us beautifully here that, friends, in Christ, death is not the end of our story. In fact, as one pastor put it, in Christ, your long-term worst-case scenario is resurrection and eternal life. The gates of Hades will not hold God's people. They will not prevail against them. That's the second part of Jesus' response to Peter. And then there's a third part. It comes in verse 19. Jesus says, Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, this is another verse that throughout church history has caused no small amount of argument and debate. But I think what Jesus is telling Peter here, because Jesus says the same thing to all of the disciples a few chapters later in Matthew 18, is that the church has the authority from God to declare God's forgiveness to believers in Christ who are repentant from their sin. And the church also has authority and even a mandate from God to declare the danger of judgment to those who do not believe in Christ or turn away from their sin. But the important piece here is that the authority given to the church is to declare God's forgiveness, not to create God's forgiveness, not to control God's forgiveness. But when the church proclaims that all who trust in Christ and turn from sin are saved, the church does that with the voice of God. And when the church warns that those who do not trust in God and do not turn from sin are in danger of His judgment, the church does that with the voice of God. My freshman year in college, uh, we had a a period of about three weeks where my dorm had uh, false fire alarms. Uh, people were pulling the alarms or something was happening, but it was multiple times a week, at usually at 3 a.m., when everything great happens. Uh, the fire alarm would go off, and we would all have to kind of get up and get dressed and shuffle out the door, and we were just really, really tired of it. And so sure enough, one night, uh, same thing happens, 3 a.m., the uh, the fire alarm goes off, and I'm like, man, I just want to stay in bed. But I was like, I'll do it. I'll be, I'll be obedient. I'll be a sheep. You know, we'll all... We'll all walk out here together. My roommate gets up and he goes over to the door and he goes, doorknob's not hot, we're fine. Uh, he, you know, we were just, anyway. So he opens the door and smoke billows into our room. And he's like, dude! And he just runs down the hall. And I'm like, Bo, get down! And I'm like, army crawling down the hall. And uh, we get down there and 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 everyone's like, oh man, another false alarm. I'm like, no, there's smoke on the fourth floor of Granville South. Like everyone is... It was a big deal. Turns out someone had just emptied a fire extinguisher. It wasn't smoke. Uh, It was just fire extinguisher stuff uh, floating around. I didn't catch that it didn't smell like smoke. Um, The point was, that night, it didn't feel like a drill anymore, which is a long way of me simply saying to you, every week in our worship service, we do a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. And what I want you to see, what, what Jesus is saying here, That's live ammo. That's not a drill. When I say to you every week, if you have confessed your sins this morning, hear this promise of God's forgiveness for you in Christ, that is true. That is exactly what is happening. It's not a drill. It is not low stakes. The stakes are infinitely high. When God proclaims to us that we are forgiven when we have confessed our sins, he means it. And it's true each and every Sunday. The last thing that Jesus says to Peter in verse 20, or it says, he says this to all the disciples, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And the first time I read that, I'm like, what? Isn't that the whole point? Is that the disciples would go and preach the good news? Uh, Why is Jesus saying not to tell people he is the Christ? And the reason becomes apparent momentarily. Uh, And that is, we move down in the story to verse 21. And what Jesus does there is he begins to explain to his disciples what it would mean that he is the Messiah, what the Christ has come to do, and he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, all of the religious power brokers of the day, and he must be killed, and on the third day he must rise again from the dead. Peter does not like this message. Peter, like most Jews in the first century, believed that the Messiah was going to come as a powerful military leader, and that Jesus is not going to go and be killed. Jesus is going to go and kill. He's going to ride into Jerusalem at the head of an army, and he's going to drive Rome out of Israel, and he's going to restore the kingdom to its former greatness. And so Peter hears Jesus saying this, and he thinks, Jesus, you're being a downer. That's not what you're going to do, Lord. And he takes Jesus aside because you don't rebuke Jesus in a group. That would be embarrassing for Jesus. Instead, he takes Jesus to the side and he says, far be it, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus recognizes what this is. Jesus has heard these words before. And so he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are putting a stumbling block. You are a hindrance to me. You are putting a stumbling block before me. Your I, your mind is on the things of man, not the things of God. Peter was doing so well, like three minutes ago. What happened? Peter believes that there is a bloodless path to glory for the Messiah. One of my seminary professors put it that way, and it has stuck with me forever. Peter believes that the Messiah won't have to suffer. He will inflict suffering on the enemies of God, that Jesus' reign will be one of power. It will be a victory march into Jerusalem. And Jesus, when he hears Peter say that, he remembers the same things that Satan did when he tempted him in the wilderness all the way back. In Matthew chapter 4, when Satan offered Jesus a bloodless path to glory. Worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. A commentator says, these were all temptations to be above the ordinary, to avoid suffering and to win. And whenever Jesus comes into contact with these enticements, he knows their author. Jesus recognized the sentiment of Satan in what Peter was saying. Friends, we all love the idea of a Christ, but we don't love the idea of a cross. We want a Christ, we don't want a cross. We're not immune to what Peter does here. We, we all want a bloodless path. To glory. We want great kids without having to parent them. We want great grades without having to study. We want to lose weight without diet and exercise. Every time I get on the internet, I get ads for weight loss without diet and exercise. It's everywhere. I don't even usually Google that. I don't know why that cookie is sticking with me. We want to get into Ivy League schools without working for it. We want excellence without effort. We do this spiritually as well. We want maturity without suffering. We want insight without having to learn. We want to grow in knowledge but never be wrong. It's impossible. We want unshakable faith as long as that means we never have to trust God in anything difficult. We want patience but we don't want to wait for it. We want it right now. We want an empty tomb, but we don't want a cross. And what Jesus is doing in this section here is he is reminding us that the way of the Messiah is not out of suffering, but through suffering. And in fact, in this third section, Jesus gives us a sense of what that looks like and what that means, because he says there in verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a vivid image. Think about what Jesus is saying there. He is saying that the life of his disciples is cross-shaped. Our lives will be shaped like his cross. and, And we have to realize the cross was an implement of death. The cross was an implement of suffering. The words of two martyrs might here help us understand some of the heart of what Christ is saying here. One is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor that opposed Adolf Hitler. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jim Elliott was a missionary in Ecuador who was killed by the very tribes he went to preach the gospel to, and he had written in his journal prior to that, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And these men literally lost their lives for the sake of Christ, as Jesus mentions here in verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But I always fear when I preach a section like this, that we hear Jesus' words as some kind of command to be a hero for Jesus, to be radical for Jesus, to do huge things for God. And if that's what we hear when we come to verse 24, we're going to think that this verse maybe just doesn't apply because that's not something we can do, or we're going to think that we should just feel constantly guilty because we're not doing enough, or we're going to be tempted to just fake it and broadcast these huge things. That we're doing for God all the time. But I think what Jesus is telling us here, when he's saying to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, what he is saying is that the Christian life is about following Jesus into holiness and obedience. It's about following Jesus into suffering and self-giving generosity and service instead of pursuing ease and And comfort for ourselves. You see, Jesus reminds us that we are called to pursue holiness, and the cross is the means by which we do it. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that the record of our sin is nailed to the cross. It is the cross that cancels the penalty for our sin because that penalty was given and put on Christ. And it is the cross that enables us to turn away from sin and to walk in holiness. That's what it means that carrying our cross means walking in holiness. Carrying the cross means we are turning away from sin, the very thing the cross frees us from. But think about the self-giving generosity and service that the cross also calls us to. And what I want you to see there is that this doesn't mean the cross is calling us to big things for God. It is calling us as well to small things. One theologian uh, put it this way. He said, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. It's true. We, we tend to think we should do big things for God, but often we are discontent to even try to do the small things. And so my Hope for you this morning is that you can see that that taking up your cross and following Jesus is as simple as putting your phone down and engaging the people God has given you to love. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is as simple as sharing the little that you have with those who are around you. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is as simple as learning to notice and be inconvenienced by other people. The way you come home from work is a great way to take up your cross and follow Jesus because if you come home from work and just think, I need to unplug for three hours, you might not be taking up your cross and following Jesus. But if you come home from work and realize that you need to engage and love your family, that is a way you can take up your cross and follow Jesus. A songwriter named Jill Phillips uh, writes in a song, "You don't have to save the world. All that hero talk is only superficial stuff. If you want to change the world, all you got to do is show up. Just show up, friends. When Jesus tells us to take us, tells us to take up our crosses and follow Him, He is calling us to show up and to love the people that He has given us to love." An example of this from our own lives, when uh, our firstborn was born, uh, Jack, good to see you, Um, uh, two weeks after he was born, Jen ended up in the emergency room uh, for an appendectomy. Um, So she had appendicitis. And we were living in St. Louis. We were miles and miles and miles away from family. We really only had other people, uh, other seminary students, other Christians who could help us in this time. And so at 3 a.m., when Jen comes in and she's in agony and I'm like, I've got to take her to the hospital, I call the wife of one of our fellow seminary students who has a two-year-old at home, and I said, can I leave my newborn with you? And she's like, no, but I'll come stay with your newborn. So she came to our house. I took Jen to the emergency room, and we find out, of course, she has to have surgery, and she's going to be in the hospital overnight. And, you know, I'm calling and we're getting people, family is flying in to come and, you know, stay and coordinate and help. And this this young mom in the seminary ended up staying with Jack for about 10 hours that day. And when I got home that night to get clothes for Jen and to get a bag uh, for her to stay in the hospital, I found that not only was my newborn alive, uh, which was great and the primary goal, our house had been cleaned from top to bottom. And like Gwyneth House on like newborn baby was not, it wasn't just a little cluttered, you know, it was like war zone. It had been cleaned from top to bottom. She had cooked us meals and put them in the fridge. I mean, this was a a young mom who had her own life. She had her own stuff going on. She has a husband in seminary. She has a two-year-old at home and she went out of her way to just love us. She denied herself. She took up her cross and followed Jesus into holiness, into self giving generosity and service. And, friends, I think whenever Christians live into this vision, the gospel is beautiful to the world. When Christians take seriously the call to turn away from our own sin instead of fixing the sin of other people, and when we move towards others in generosity and self-giving and service, the gospel is beautiful. And in fact, if you read the story of the early church, that's the gospel that transformed the whole world. The early Christians in the 4th century were speaking out against Roman slavery because they recognized... The dignity of every human being. The church in the earliest centuries was rescuing unwanted children from the trash pile, which is what they were doing in Rome. They would just leave unwanted children to die as infants on trash piles. Christians were daily going around the trash piles and rescuing these children and raising them because these children were made in God's image. Early Christians helped men understand that their wives are not their property and that their wives are indeed partners in the gospel. There was a Roman emperor who came to power after sort of the rise of Christianity in the early days, and he wanted to restore Rome to greatness, and he thought the way to do that was to reinvigorate paganism, and that they needed to start worshiping the Roman gods again. And there are letters where he is complaining to other people about how hard it is to get people to turn on Christians, because the Christians care better for the Roman poor than the Romans do. It's amazing. The gospel was beautiful. And what this is reminding us is that we don't change the world by worldly power. But when we follow Jesus, when we take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and walk after him, Jesus is saying, you will show the world what I'm like. And we show the world what he's like because Jesus is not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. And on our behalf. You see, Jesus carried his own cross, and he did that for us. Jesus suffered, and he did that for us. Jesus died and was buried, and he did that for us. Jesus rose again in triumph, and he did that too for us. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God where he reigns in glory, and he did that for us. One theologian says, Jesus bears the entire load of faithfulness on our behalf. And then says, follow me. Follow me. Friends, there's no bloodless path to glory, but there is a path to glory. And it is a path that has been forged and trod and opened by Jesus. And what Jesus shows us time and again is that the way up in this world is the way down into service and love And generosity. And in Christ, all of our lives will end not with a grave, but with an empty tomb and with glory. But until that day, we have a cross to carry. And we have a Savior who is with us by the Holy Spirit. And that Savior is teaching us and empowering us to follow Him in holiness and in self-giving generosity and service. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he will surely do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we confess that we want a bloodless path to glory. We want greatness without suffering we want maturity without having to go through things we want to learn but not have to be wrong father forgive us and we know that in Christ you have forgiven us and you are teaching us even this morning what it means to take up our crosses and follow him father do that work in us And even now as we come to your table, take these ordinary elements, this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to make us more like Christ, to anchor us in his work on our behalf. And we pray all of these things in his name, amen.